Okay, let's get into this new uh, series, Easter series. One of the things you'll have noticed about coming along to Christchurch Escape, um, no matter who's preaching, hopefully, uh, we often end up uh, with Jesus. The same in Sunday school, but definitely the same in here. Uh, so we could be talking about Noah's Ark, and we could be talking about a crazy king in the book of Kings, or we could be talking about what we should do with money or how we should think about work. Uh, but we always, we always, hopefully, we always end up with Jesus. We always end up at the cross. And this is because we believe, our conviction here at Christchurch is that he wasn't just, he is, but he wasn't just a good man. It wasn't just somebody that did miracles, although we think he did miracles, we believe he did miracles. It wasn't just that there is like the payday of heaven away in our future. It's because we are convicted that he is, um, John uses this word in chapter one of his gospel, of his account of Jesus. He, he is the logos. He is God's word. He is God's breath to us. He is God's logic to us. He is what makes sense of everything. So yes, he is a good man and his life's really interesting and he's really worth talking about and remembering all of that kind of stuff. But that is not just the reason that we come to him in every talk. We believe he speaks into every moment. My conviction is he speaks into every moment. Who he is, the reality of him speaks into every moment of your life. How you make moral decisions, what you think about your job, what you think about your relationships, whether you should or shouldn't have one, everything. He changes our perspective on everything. This is our conviction about Jesus. And in the Easter story particularly, so what happens as hopefully as we preach, our view of Christ is that we magnify into him more and more. We search him out more and more to find more and more meaning about life. He says something. He says and do, does things that are in the Easter story, the Passion Week, in his lifetime, but particularly in the Easter story, that are just incredible, like mind-blowing perspective changing things. So we're going to look at one statement. I don't know if you noticed it in the text. He says something amazing. So it's, it's 28 and 29 where Jesus says this amazing thing. Let me bring you up um, to speed with what's going on in the moment. Jesus has been arrested. This is the Easter story. Jesus has been arrested in the night. Jesus, Judas has betrayed him. And there's this, um, if you've watched Mel Gibson's film or if you've taken any time to read the story, Jesus is beaten up um, he's got had a crown of thorns rammed on his head, and he's, you know, middle of the night, taken away, everything's turned, and, he's, and, and in this moment, he's carrying his cross up the hill to Golgotha, or he's having it carried for him, and we don't know what's happened at this point, Simon of Cyrene comes along, and whether, whether Jesus was flagging, whether he couldn't keep, you know, he couldn't hold the cross above his head, we don't know this, but this is the scene. All of the guys have legged it at this point, as you can see in the text, but the women are there. The women are there, and this is the scene. Jesus, he's, he's behind, I guess, Simon of Cyrene with his cross, making his way up the hill, and the women that support him are just in floods of tears, and he makes this claim in verse 28 and 29. Don't know if we could have that up on the, on the screen. Jesus turned and said to them, it's amazing. Daughters of Jerusalem. Now just think about where his head's at. Think about what's going on in the storyline. Think about what he must be feeling, what he must be thinking. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Look at what's happening to him. Look at where he is. Weep for yourselves and your children. 
The time's coming when you'll say, think about the depths of this statement. Time's coming when you'll say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us until the, and to the hills cover us. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, this, this moment clearly is, this is a sad moment. You should be sad about this. What's happening here is awful. But it's even sadder. It's even sadder what this moment means for the future. Do you see that in verse 28 and 29? The people, people round about, people watching on, people in that moment and people to come are missing, this is what the real sadness is, they're missing God reaching out to them in love. That is what's sadder. This moment is hugely sad. It's an awful moment. It's desperately sad for these women who follow Jesus around. And Jesus stops them. It's an incredible thing to say. He said, there's something even that should break your heart even more than this. At the root of this, at the root of this moment is something even sadder. And it's that this world that we are living in, these people now are going to miss God in me, reaching out to them in love. And he says, this means that the, the future, think about how drastic a thing he's saying in this moment. This means that the future will mean that, mean that people will not want to have, you know, the, in biblical terms, legacy was everything. You, your kids were everything. They would look after you into the future. You're going to not want to have that. You're going to miss this so much that you're going to wish that you were dead. You're going to wish the mountains would crumble in on you. And he goes on to emphasize this in verse 31 to a greater extent. If people do these things, like if people are this wicked when the tree is green, people are this wicked when, when you can see the fruits of the kingdom, when you've got me around, when you can see God at work, when God's people are trying, at least trying to live under his law. If, if people do these things now, if they're this evil now, imagine how evil they're going to be when there's no evidence of God or when God is more distant. And that's what he's saying is going to happen. Imagine how bad things are going to get. This is the picture that Jesus draws. He says, this moment that you think is really sad because I'm dying or I'm being hung on a tree is really, really sad because the people have missed God. And it's going to get sadder and sadder the further away you get. This is what he's saying. No matter how choked up we get about stuff, the real sadness in this world, this is what Jesus is saying that you've got to see to these women, you've got to see this, the real sadness, the thing that you should really be sad about is that people, like, so you look out, huge sadness in front of us in Ukraine, huge sadness when we get tough diagnoses, huge sadness when we lose jobs, huge sadness in life. Jesus is saying at the root of all that, something that's even sadder is that people will miss God reaching out to them in love. That's what's really sad. That's what Jesus acknowledges in this moment. They're missing me. They're missing God reaching out to them. That's the sadness. They won't know him, so they won't really ever get to find out who they are. They won't experience his love. And I guess God's saying to his word, through his word, this is the perspective that we should have of the world. So here's the thing, I've said all that. And if you are, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I don't know what a Christian is, if you're a Christian, you should really feel the squeeze of this. You should, you, should, 
You should feel this wrestle. If, if faith is something that you're thinking about, this might be a huge obstacle for us because there's a huge, powerful school of thought that exists at the moment that says something like the idea of a God with rules that demands us to be subordinate to him, that says, and this is the message of the Bible, that there's something inherently wrong with us, that is the thing that causes sadness. That's actually the thing that causes sadness. Historically, that's the thing that's causes sadness. God, the idea of God, is the thing that's causes sadness. And, and the school of thought would go on to say, finding ourselves, happiness, real happiness, contentment, understanding our place in the universe comes when we get past the idea of God. That's maybe a big idea of modernity at the moment. We find real happiness and move away from sadness when we find ourselves getting past the idea of God because God, this idea of God, lots of voices in modernity would say, has been like an abuse put on us. We make progress when we get past it. It's a powerful I'm guessing that you've come across this. I'm guessing that you've felt this. I've felt this. It's hard not to feel it when we see powerful leaders in the world grab a Bible and declare some really horrible stuff, but use the Bible sort of as their power tool or declare war in the name of religion. Anyone in this room not found biblical instruction, God's sort of will for our lives? Anyone in this room don't put your hands up, not found it oppressive in their lifetime. Anyone gone, man, that's a big ask. Look how many rules are in this book. Look how much stuff I've got to think about and try and do. So you flick through them, you go, okay, don't kill. Yeah, I can go along with that. That's a, I'll agree with that. That seems like a pretty good rule. And then, but then you flick through them and think about some of the other things that we are asked to do. Forgive the badness. Forgive, forgive everyone if you can. Forgive 70 times 7. Forgive inf infinitely. Live at peace. Live at peace with people who just won't live at peace with you. Be holy. A sort of command that runs right through Scripture. Be holy because I'm holy. Keep a day holy. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Feel the oppression. Who's not felt the oppression of this rule book and thought, this is a bit heavy. Who's putting all this on me? Run away from the sex sin stuff. Don't even, don't even look lustfully at people. And we scream out, don't we? Let me, let me live. We feel the weight of this oppression. It's a strong argument. How do we rebuff this? Is there a Christian re rebuttal to this? Is there any sort of comeback? What is it? What is, I guess this is the question. What is, what is the thing in the world that is making us sad? Which direction would we need to head towards, towards God or away from him to be happy? The explanation, I think, the explanation I'm going to give today, five or ten minute explanation, comes from peering further into the story of the crucifixion. I think there's an answer here. It's an answer that satisfies me and I'm going to present it to you as a satisfactory answer of why we should head towards God and not away from him. So I want you to look with me more closely at the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want, what I want us to do is watch, watch how he's treated, look closely at how he's treated, what, what he does despite the fact that he's treated like this, and then make your decision about whether you're going to head towards him or whether you're going to head away from him. The first thing that I see when I read through these texts, and I guess this is sort of verse 
in the chunk, verse 32, 33, is the huge injustice of the moment. We are being shown a horrific injustice. That's what we've been made to see. I, I was watching the news just in the week, as is my habit. 10 o'clock news is a Gibson family staple. Stick the news on. Another, another incident in Ukraine, this, this, this time uh, they come to the story of uh, this guy who's been sort of hiding away for the last few weeks. He's a chemist. I don't know if anyone watched this story. And he come, it's like he emerges from living underneath ground and he gets back and he finds his, um, his, the, the block where his um, store was. He's like blown to bits. There's tanks outside, you know, beating up tanks. There's dead bodies in the street. He gets into his store and all his stuff's been looted and nicked. And you kind of, he's sort of, they're doing that thing, uh, the news, where they sort of try and share that, the horribleness of the moment, showing him it for the first time. And, and he's, this guy's looking around going, I can't believe this, I can't believe I'm caught, how have I got caught up in this? This is so horrible. How am I in this unjust moment? What on earth have I done? Just running my chemist's shop. And you realize that you're watching, as you watch it back, you're just watching this horrible, unjust act play out. That's what we're looking at when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus lived. So go, go home and study it if you don't want to take my word for it. You know, study it in the Gospels or study it through history or whatever. Jesus lived an outrageously good life. He was a ridiculously good human being. He would walk around, didn't have any possessions, didn't have a roof over his head. He would walk around just try and, try and imagine somebody else like this, just somebody who walked around being kind. He just walked around places being kind, helping out vulnerable people, sticking up for marginalized people, challenging oppressive people. And not in a, I'm going to beat you up kind of a way, just pleading with them, reasoning with them. And when fame came his way and when power came his way, he would walk away from it. He didn't need it. He was an outrageously good man. And in this story, we see this playing out in the, in the preceding part of the text. He was innocent. Maybe you can remember the story. He goes before Pilate and he goes before Herod. And they say, we can't find, even though he's brought to them, brought before them in the justice system, they say, we can't find anything wrong with him. There's nothing, he's not done any, there's no, I find no, I think this is what Pilate said, I find no faults with him. He's completely innocent. And yet, verse 32 and verse 33, here's where we are. He is numbered, as Isaiah would say, with the transgressors. He's in the middle of the two thieves. He's being crucified. He's making his way up to Golgotha with all of those other thieves, all of those other outcast people, all of those other troublemakers. He's with them, and he's about to be crucified. We are watching as we read this text, a horrible injustice play out. Second thing that I noticed was the insults. And it's almost like the insults sort of crank up as you read through this text. One of the things you sort of, as you sort of dig around in the story, you realize all of the voices make, that are advocates for Jesus up to this point, they're, they're, nobody's there. Nobody's there sticking up for him. They've all gone. The disciples have run away. The women are there, and they're there, but they're not advocating for him. They're in floods of tears. And do you see what it says about the crowd? I think that's verse 35. 
we could just skip on to the next bit, verse 35. The people that welcomed him so vociferously on Palm Sunday, screaming for him, those people, they're there, but they're silent. The crowds left him. And then the insults come. Verse 35. The rulers of Israel sneer at him. They're so delighted to get their chance to have a go at Jesus when he's got no chance to come back at them. The Romans, in verse 36, goad at his authority. You can imagine it, can't you? These Romans, imperial guards or whoever they were, from the empire, who are you to declare yourself a king? Even, verse 39, and this is maybe I think the most climactic moment, even the other criminal who's you know, been a badden, even he heaps insults on him. Why don't you save us? The insults come thick and fast. When you stack up, I mean, just stop for a second and stack up how much is going on that would cause a human being to have their judgment clouded, to lose their good nature. Just, just consider what's going on here. It's horrific injustice. That would cause you to waver, wouldn't it? He's in agony. How's your thinking when you get, when you stub your toe? Are you a reasonable person when you stub your toe? If I just stub my toe, I'm a horror for an hour. Jesus is in agony at this point. He's been unjustly treated. He's in agony. He's been abandoned by everybody that he's been with. He's been insulted. And the text previously reads that he was anxious. He was in deep anguish. All of this is heaped on him. He's in this horror show of a moment with his life about to cease in front of him. Blood spilling from every orifice that he's got. And yet, how do we find him? He's forgiving. Everything that should cause you to lose it has happened. And we find Jesus forgiving. To the crowd in verse 34, to the crowd who'd gleefully welcomed him in, who all of a sudden shut up when he turned against him, Jesus says to them, says to God on their behalf, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. He's got forgiveness for them. To the thief, who's kind of the heart of this story that I'm giving out just now, the thief, who's a crook, he is a bad one. He's probably in the, the place where he should be in terms of the present legal system. But by association, has made Jesus look like a thief. Jesus has got lumbered up with him. As far as we know, and we don't know everything, as far as we know, he's never given God a second thought in his whole life. He's certainly not going to have time to turn things around. He's not going to be able to go and make amends for anything. But because he recognizes who he is in this moment, this last gasp moment, and because he recognizes who Jesus is, Jesus turns and he says to him, you're forgiven. In fact, he says something more mind-blowing than that. He says, today... You, thief, doesn't say that, but that's what he's saying, are going to be with me in paradise. Now just think about this for a second. So we did eschatology at Bible College, just about eschatology, end times, where we're all going to end up, where we're all going to go. I needed a lot of coffee just to stay in the game, if I'm really honest. just about blew my mind. So I don't know all of the logistics about how this all plays out, but look at the picture that the Bible is giving us about First guy into heaven. See who it is? Not done much 
very good. Yet the picture is almost that Jesus will go into the kingdom with him. Now, just think about all that we've learned about what Jesus said his kingdom would be like. The first shall be last. I've come for the lost sheep. I'm going to leave all the other sheep, and I'm going to drag in the one that's got lost. And you think, is he really going to follow through with that? And as you think, as you get your first impressions about heaven and God's kingdom being fulfilled, you see at the very start of it, first guy in the door is the guy that has absolutely no chance and no claims to be there. It's the thief. What does this mean for us? Two things I think that it means. This guy should be a favorite Bible character. You can dingy King David, chopping off Goliath said, and you can dingy Joshua. You can dingy other guys if you've got favorite Bible characters. Maybe that's just a pastor's thing, I don't know. But you can dingy him and you can replace him with this guy. This guy means that there, he's in heaven. Not much sanctification going on with the thief of the cross. Not much turning things around and he's there in heaven. This guy means that there's nothing that's too messed up in our lives. Nothing too messed up in our lives that isn't redeemable. There's no amount of time other than the last breath that we can leave it too late for this God to hear us. There's nobody down the road that we can look at, maybe that's in our family, that you think this person's got no chance. There's nobody out there who God is not willing to pour out his love and forgive them. This guy means that it's never too late for us in our faith life. It's never too late. We can't rule ourselves out. God doesn't, and we can't rule out other people. God's grace is too big. Second thing that it means when we think about whether we should head towards God, whether we think that we should, we should do that or whether we should run away and flee, as perhaps the voice of modernity says, this passage really clearly, I think, tells us that God's good. He's a good father and he loves us and we can trust him. We get a glimpse of heaven, I think, as we read through the Bible. It tells us really clearly that his kingdom, God's kingdom, there does seem to be some rules. There's rules right the way through this book. And Jesus comes and changes that and he condenses it all down to rules in the end. But there is a way to live. There is, there is guidance. There is instruction. There is a direct, there's, a, there's a trajectory for us. There's a heading towards holiness. There's a demand on our lives. Live this kind of a way. There is the rules. But there's also this thief in heaven, in his kingdom. There's also all of the people who, who couldn't keep the rules, didn't keep the rules. There's forgiveness in heaven. That is what I think love is, those two things. I think one of the things that I've, I've learned now as a 42-year-old guy, learned this, I guess, through my family relationships, being the son of a mum and dad who've loved me and now being a parent of three kids who I love, getting a sense of what love is. And one of the things I've picked up is there's definitely rules. We might condemn God and we might be angry with him for giving us rules, but there's definitely rules. Some really weird ones, even given out in love. There's all the standard rules. Don't drink too much, don't date him. <laughs> don't do this, don't do that. There's all those kind of rules. But there's like also rules that I've given out over my life like, you can play down to the second light. Don't go past that house. Don't mix wine and spirits. Don't do this, don't do that. There's all of these levels of rules. And you look at them, and they're insane. They're quite ridiculous, lengthy, 
And yet they are totally connected with, with what it means to really, really love somebody. And yet, if that is all that's there, if it's just rules, then it's not love, is it? It's part of what it is, but it's not love, is it? It doesn't amount to love in and of itself. Love comes when you find somebody and you dish out all these rules and they just can't keep them. They just slip up and there is forgiveness anyway. There is the loving arms of a mum who goes, yeah, I know you did it, but I still love you. Here's, here's the rules again. Let's keep going and work towards it. These two things come in tandem, don't they? Guidance, rules, instruction, and more forgiveness. More forgiveness. Always more forgiveness. That's what love is. That's what we see in this story. That's what we know heaven is like because the thief, last gasp, didn't do a thing right his whole life, is in heaven today. I would reckon that on some level, the wrestling match of should I head towards God or should I head away from him is going on for some of you. It's going on for me sometimes. Should I, should I go towards him? Or what is this storyline that I'm hearing? I'm, do I need to get past this? Which way should I go? Look at the thief on the cross. Look at the love poured out from the man who suffered. His love is true. God, even, even, even with people that hold out the Bible and say ridiculous things, even when church folks make a real mess of it and abuse their positions, God is love. We see it in the life of Jesus and we see it with his attitude towards the thief on the cross. If you turned and you're running the other way, my encouragement to you tonight is go back to him. Turn around and go back to him. He loves you.